Okay, uh, that is the end of the Sweden-South Korea game. Quite dull. Uh, a 1-0 victory to Sweden. Uh, a penalty scored from captain Andreas Grangfist. Um, we don't have that much to say about it, to be honest. I mean, I suppose the interesting way to look at this is uh, how it might assist us in imagining the outcome of the, of the rest of the group. The game yesterday between Germany and Mexico was much more exciting to probably much better teams uh, who... It seems obvious now, likely to proceed unless Germany massively cock up against Sweden, Alex? Yeah, I can't really see that happening. Germany's vulnerability against Mexico was um, not having enough players in midfield, and they'll, by and large, I think, address that. Also, Mexico were able to break a lot quicker than Sweden will be able to. Sweden looked quite ponderous, Victor Klassen aside. Mm. Um, who I thought did quite well coming in off the left, but uh, sorry, off the right. Um, Forsberg didn't do as much as I would have hoped that he would do. No. Um, Berg looked pretty kind of slow and steady up front, and yeah, I mean Sweden were the better team, and I thought that the South Korean or Korean Republic, sorry, mm. goalkeeper Chu played very very well. Beyond Chu, did South Korea, Korean Republic, really offer anything to give us hope against Mexico or against Germany? I mean, there'd be a different sort of games for both of those won't they but it, I mean it, it would seem obvious they're probably going to finish bottom of the group yeah I mean you might think against Mexico and also potentially even against Germany with the way the German fullbacks were playing that um, Song Hyun Min would get a bit more space to be able to try and influence the game yeah um, but I just think that Mexico and Germany are going to be too strong for both of these teams. Mm. So from a Swedish point of view, looking at their setup and looking ahead to games that Sweden are going to play against Germany and Mexico, is there any inkling for us to think that they tactically they might have uh, more of an advantage, in, well not an advantage against those teams, but more of an advantage than they did against Korea Republic, who were arguably more defensive? No, I think I think Sweden's game plan is is consistent irrespective of who they're playing. Yeah, um, they defend quite deep. They look to ship the ball wide to um, Forsberg to try and get something to happen. Bursting forwards, likewise with Klassen, but slightly to a lesser extent. Um, they're using Berg as a big solid centre forward who can hold the ball up and Toivonen mm. running in off him. That's how they played all through qualification. It's how they played in the playoff against Italy. Yeah. Um, and it's how they played against Korean Republic. So yeah. it's very difficult to see what is a fairly limited Sweden squad in terms of individual talent suddenly being able to mix that up. And the, from a Korea Republic perspective, uh, it was noted by the commentary team that they had a six foot six, uh, six, foot six striker playing up front. Mm. Although oddly, they didn't really seem to be making many crosses in towards him. Which is, is that presumably because Sweden have quite a big backline as well? I think it's partly that, and I think it's also because um, Sweden worked very hard to close down crossing opportunities, probably right. for exactly that reason. Yeah. Um, because. Uh, Key was playing uh, as the central midfielder. He he's a, a deep sitting kind of tidy playmaker uh-huh. midfielder. So South Korea weren't Korean Republic weren't getting a lot of support coming up directly behind Kim either. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's not you know it, I, d- I don't think we can infer a huge amount from this game 
other than both sides played more or less how we'd expected them to play, yeah. and neither of them are particularly exciting. The six foot six striker uh, did make me think about Peter Crouch, though, and uh, I wanted to make this little section of the podcast a little bit more interesting because that game certainly wasn't. Emil Heskey, Peter Crouch, yeah, prime, yeah, in their prime. Who would you choose, Alex? Uh, and I'll come to you afterwards on this mm. as well, Philippe. Who would you choose to play alongside Michael Owen in the sort of lovely England of the late nineties, early noughties? Uh, Peter Crouch. Peter Crouch. Yeah, I, I think Peter Crouch was a lot better as a goal scorer other than with headed goals than he's given credit for. Yeah. Um, and also he played for Southampton. So yeah. sure, sure. it's fairly obvious who I'd pick. Philippe, I mean, don't. I mean, we know Emil Heskey played for Leicester, but let's not. Uh... Well, he gets to have Southampton, so I'm going to go with. Uh, <laughs> my, dad, my dad taught Emil Heskey for a while, actually. <laughs> In that case, then, I'm going to ask Neil, who's asked us not to mention him on the podcast, but <laughs> our boss Neil is here today. All, all I'm going to ask you for, Neil, is, is a one word answer Emil Heskey, I suppose that's two words, or Peter Crouch. Emil Heskey. Emil Heskey, okay. All right, well, that game was rubbish. Hopefully the next will be better, and uh, we'll come back and chat to you soon. Right, well, that was a, uh, a more interesting second half. First half there, Belgium-Panama. We were thinking it looked a little bit stolid. But uh, the first goal really opened things up, and what a fantastic goal it was. Dries Mertens, Martin. It was what the... Martin? <laughs> Goodness me, that's a cool... But I used to do a podcast with someone called Martin about five or six years ago. It's because you said Mertens. Dries Mertens, Martin. Yeah. Dries Mertens, Alex. Uh, it was what the game needed, really, wasn't it? Panama were doing very well, and there was a shout, really, at the beginning of the second half to think... Maybe they could see this through based on their performance in the first half. But that Mertens goal really opened things up and then it was a little bit more formulaic for Belgium. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, Belgium played pretty much exactly as we thought they would. Uh And there is an argument to say that Belgium are one of these sides who don't really have a great... They've got great individual players, but systemically you know what you're going to get. There's not a great deal of variety... Pretty much the only change that they can make tactically is to withdraw Mertens, play De Bruyne further up and have a stronger double midfield. But Mm -hmm. aside from that, you know what you're getting with Belgium. Now, that doesn't mean you can stop them, but it does mean you can set up defensively to mitigate that. And yes, Panamanian goalkeeper had a good game. I thought Torres was very strong in in, uh, central defence. With the exception of that little mistake near the beginning that nearly... Uh, gave Azad a goal but then yeah, you know, but, you know day. yes and, and otherwise a lot of strong clearances very very good um, mm. touch away from the back post early on so well from Belgium's point of view there's two sort of uh, personnel things I wanted to ask you about the first one was lot, lots of comments in the um, in the build up to the game on the Belgian video that we released about the uh, absence of Nijgelen uh, so I wondered what you thought of that based on this performance and the other one to, to ask, ask you about is Carrasco playing at wing back there were times in the game there where we thought you know perhaps he was, obviously it's not his primary position we're not expecting him to be a fantastic wing back maybe defensively a little bit fragile against a better team is that going to be a problem? I think it will be a problem there was uh, the really the one opportunity that Panama got came from Carrasco not tracking back Yeah, and Vertonghen was furious with him you made a good point when we were watching the game that Vertonghen has played as a left back and mm. Mounier tends play tends to play more as a right back at PSG. So mm. they can sort of swing across 
in a kind of pendulum style to compensate for that, mm. but they don't naturally because Mounier mm. does push up quite high. So there's definitely an area of vulnerability there. Um, in terms of Nijngolen, I think if he had uh, been in the squad, and, and I, the reason he's not in the squad is predominantly, I believe, a kind of personality issue with Martinez, mm-hmm. um, he would play alongside Wetzel. That would push De Bruyne up. Uh, it would give Belgium a lot more dynamism from the central midfield area. De Bruyne would be higher up and able to create problems in and around the box alongside Hazard. And I think Belgium would be a lot stronger for it. So you think that's a mistake? Well, it's it's a mistake only insofar as he's not been able to convince that player to kind of get on with him, I think. Mm. Um but yes, I, th- I think Belgium would be stronger for that. Similarly, I, I, I think Belgium would probably look better if they played De Bruyne further up and Moussa Dembele alongside Witzel. Mm. I think I think you need a Witzel in there. Yeah, you need a player like that who is able to tie things down. Sebastian Rudy, for example. I was just going to say, you get yourself into a Germany situation where you don't have a covering central midfielder and mm. you can be opened up a lot. Yeah. Um, that's even more the case when you've got wing-backs. Well, some of the comments on the video as well are talking about Belgium's ability, or record at least, against bigger teams. And uh, there was there's one uh, as well suggesting that this particular tactic, the three at the back, doesn't work against bigger teams, in this person's opinion, um, who have fast players on the wings. Ah. <sighs> I yeah I don't agree with that. I think that I think that a three at the back will work if there's a, a discipline from the wing backs to do both elements. Now, by and large, successful teams who play with three at the back with wing backs, one of those wing backs by and large is more attacking. So look at Chelsea for example. Marcus Alonso is a converted left back. Victor Moses is a converted right winger. Uh So there will tend to be one player on one side who's a bit more comfortable defensively than the other because you you don't tend to get two perfect wing-backs. It works very, very well for lots of big teams, though, and Mm. and I think it's about convincing those players to put the effort in to track back or to have centre-backs that are quick enough to split wide and cover across. Well, this is one of the criticisms uh, Mark Lawrenson was making during the commentary, um, was that De Bruyne was dropping very deep often to collect the ball and play forward, with Belgium playing three centre-backs against a Panama side that weren't attacking very much. Is that a waste of a player? Yeah, no, Lawrenson is not often right, but in this instance he was. Um, And it's a thing that we highlighted in the Belgium tactics video that we put out a few days ago, Mm. you know, the, the De Bruyne you see for Belgium is not the De Bruyne you see for Man City. No. And that's why it's rumoured that he's quite unhappy in the Belgium setup because he does drop way, way past Wetzel to collect the ball from the centre backs. Now, these are two very good passing centre backs, particularly uh, in Vertonghen and, and Alderweireld. Mm. You know, they, they are extremely capable. They've both played as full backs as well, so mm. they can carry the ball forward. And they play together and do that for club. Right. And you would expect to see a kind of Kyle Walker right-sided centre-back role for at least for Alderweireld mm. pushing up carrying the ball a bit more allowing Belgium as a whole to push up mm. it isn't happening now whether it's not happening because they've specifically been told not to do that yeah. or because they're trying to compensate for the fact they don't trust their wing-backs to defend properly yeah. I, I'm not entirely sure but mm. Yeah, Lawrence was spot on to say that's what they needed to do. Well, this is our first chance to see them uh, play a World Cup game ahead of 
well, it's the final fixture of the group, isn't it? England, um, England, Belgium. What do you make of that fixture now after we've seen Belgium play? So we're going to see England play a little bit later as well, but how do you think that's going to shape up? Will there be anything in particular, an area of the pitch that you'll be looking out for, or potentially other than Yannick Carrasco as a, as a vulnerability for England to, um, to try and make an advantage of? No, I, I think Carrasco's the key one, um, and I think the combination of Sterling drifting out to the right, Trippier there, Carl Walker playing long balls down that right-hand side, I yeah. think... Carrasco will be vulnerable there. Mm. Um, I think otherwise, it's it'll be interesting to see whether England, you know, they've they've gone for two more attacking central midfielders in the lineup that they've just named to play Tunisia mm. against Belgium. Will they be a little more conservative and play Henderson and Dyer together in order to have mm. one sat on, which is what I would do, have one sat on Hazard, have one sat on De Bruyne, mm. and then effectively. Belgium don't have other players that are going to have that pass to get it through to Lukaku, who is clearly the danger man in terms of goal scoring. What's interesting about that game as well is that when you think about it, it's almost a, a Tottenham training scenario. I mean, for Harry Kane, it will be it will be interesting to see whether because he knows uh, the defenders, the two centre backs he's going to be facing very well, whether that will give him an advantage or a disadvantage because they know him very well. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a. An interesting one, isn't it? And the that, Deli that, Alley too. Th- yeah, and the Belgium squad obviously very Premier League heavy, mm. and the England squad all based in the Premier League. Mm. So there will be a lot of matchups there that are regular week in week out matchups. Mm. Um, you know, similarly even De Bruyne and Kyle Walker playing with each other, or Stones. You know, they'll be playing each other in training all of the time. Mm. Um, I, I think that's the sort of thing that probably does balance out to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, by and large, those players aren't playing in systems that they are using at their club sites. Mm-hmm. So there is room for difference, and there's room to be a bit surprised by what's happening. OK, we're going to watch the England game shortly. Uh, Philippe, I'm going to ask you for a little prediction. Um, I'll go for, I think, a, a 2-0 England. Okay. Um, I think we, we, we set out uh, earlier on, yeah, a goal either side. Yeah. Um, which I think... Uh, would would be a result which would really um, soften the nerves a little bit. Okay. I don't think you know. I don't think it'd be anything spectacular because I think Tunisia are still a very good side. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'd go with, go two nil England. Neil, three nil. Three nil England. Okay. <laughs> For a moment, I thought you meant Tunisia. Uh, all right, great. Well, we're going to watch that and we'll come back and chat about it afterwards. Okay, that's the end of the England game. I'm trying to calm down because I got a little bit <laughs> emotional there. Very angry, delighted. It's justice. Uh, no, the main thing that I've been saying through uh, throughout the game, which is probably what we shouldn't talk about, is how angry I am at Martin Keown for being such a terrible, terrible commentator. Um, but that was uh, a very, very positive performance from England. And I hasten to say, not just because I'm supporting them. I think uh, I think the uh, the conclusion we can draw from that is that. In terms of playing style and uh, positivity and result overall, that's probably one of the best uh, performances from a team we've seen so far. Do you think that's fair to say, Alex? Yeah. Uh, I think there was a lot to be encouraged about in that. Um, it wasn't It wasn't perfect, and there's certainly a few things that, that didn't necessarily work out quite so well. I, I was surprised that Dali Ali didn't come off sooner. 
um, Ruben Loftus-Cheek uh, certainly looked good when he came on as a replacement for mm. that. Um, but I think England were defensively solid. Uh, I think Trippier was excellent. Yeah, best, uh, best player on the pitch, right? Best player on the pitch. Uh, they showed a lot of movement going forwards. Mm. Um, there was... <laughs> exactly the sort of movement between the lines trying to break into interesting positions that Southgate's clearly been seeking to engender mm-hmm. some nice long passing from Henderson Very from nice. the base of that sort of uh, arrangement of four up ahead of him perhaps why he's been picked over Dyer yeah quite possibly he mm-hmm. yeah he's he's better at that and he's better at carrying the ball forward slightly more than Dyer is I think mm-hmm. so that that indicates what Southgate is seeking to do there it's, it's all about Breaking the lines and having that movement in between, and then trying to find that either with uh, these long passes up the sides, like we highlighted in the Carl Walker video, or Henderson doing it from the base of that midfield. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll come back and talk about some of the uh, technicalities in a minute. First, Phil, I want to ask you uh, what you what your thoughts were on the game. Um, similar to, to Alex, but I then also feel that the um, that the actual showing that we've got depth in that squad as well. Yeah, and I think that. Um, Ruben Loftus Cheek was inherent in that, and it's really. I think we've all we we know that we've got those players there, but to know that again can can be switched and changed and mm. um, developed on by by having quality players in, in that mould is is really important to see actually happen. And maybe it sort of took a game like this, yeah, uh, rather than as I was predicting, like a kind of solid tuna win to actually have a, a little bit of adversity mm. to actually show that England are got a little bit more about them than just sort of solid 2-0 wins against yeah. um, slightly smaller teams. Okay, well let's uh, let's talk about some of the, the more technical points then. I want to touch on the substitutions as Phil just mentioned there. Rothen, uh, Ruben Loftus-Cheek looked great when he came on. Marcus Rashford looked like he made an impact at the times when he got the ball when he came on as well. Is that, in your opinion Alex, because they're coming on late in the game, the Tunisia players have been defending very hard throughout the game, they're tired and there's a little bit more energy or is there perhaps a shout after that for either of those two players to get a starting role? Well, Loftus-Cheek plays <laughs> further back than Lingard and Dele Alli do. So in that, uh, it means that, that either Dele Alli or, or Lingard have to curtail their attacking instincts a little bit. Mm. Otherwise, you can get too much of a gap in midfield. At the beginning of the second half, that's what's happening uh, until the England defensive line started to push up and compress the space a lot more, which Aaron brought Maguire all of the... Exactly, and, and Stones had a couple of good runs as well. I thought Maguire played very well as mm. well, actually. That's well, I was, I was going to ask you about him, because in terms of the, the three-man defensive line, obviously there was the mistake for a penalty, which we, I think we all think was a little bit soft, but you know, fair enough. Um, and other than that, there was a moment earlier on in the first half where Harry Maguire looked a little bit uncertain, but beyond that, and particularly in making those surging runs up the left... I would have thought that's the purpose with having a three-man back line is that your players can do that and I think Harry Maguire probably did that more than Carl Walker which was a surprise to me I don't know if it was to you um, but also beyond those mistakes they looked very solid as well didn't they? Yeah, Maguire I think carried the ball more mm. I think Walker did what we expected in that he pushed up into midfield to assist there from a defensive perspective mm. Uh, and he played quite a number of long passes down the line to Trippier, who was in quite an advanced position. Mm-hmm. That allowed Trippier to then carry the ball one-on-one with the uh, Tunisian left-back mm-hmm. and get crosses in. Um, I think what it showed was, uh, sort of after 10 minutes or so of the second half, clearly there was an instruction to push the entire back line forwards, mm-hmm. which uh, then I think probably gave... 
Maguire particularly a degree of I don't know, courage is the wrong word but but he he probably felt like because there was a lot more space behind him he could afford to carry the ball mm. forwards more because Stones would be able to cover back and one of the Pickford nice things about that as, as, well, as well is that when you do see Maguire or, or, or Walker on the other side carry the ball forwards the uh, the Tunisia players already have their men to mark and Maguire can pretty much get all the way up to the 18 yard box before someone closes him down right yeah and that's the point that that Blair Newman was making in the England video that we did, which yeah. is that this formational switch is is all about uh, creating overloads between the lines, mm-hmm. uh, about being able to push men forwards into positions that cause a defence that have already picked up their their markers, or sorry, the players they're marking, um, because these smaller teams tend to be more man oriented than than pressing systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, that then creates a position where they're thinking, okay, well. Do I leave my man and push forwards to try and cut off this pass? Do I stay with my man, in which case Maguire or Stones or Walker can basically keep carrying the ball forward mm. until someone then pushes that that line forwards to try and intercept, try and make a tackle, and then all of a sudden you've got a player free behind them. So mm. it is effective in that respect. We've mentioned one of them already in John Stones, who I think in the middle of that defence was very, very capable. He looked very comfortable on the ball. There were a couple of moments in the second half where Tunisia players moved up to press and he handled it really well, which I think if you're a player ahead of them in that team, that's going to give you a lot of confidence in your back line that they're able to do that. There was something I wanted to ask you about, which was that a couple of times throughout the game, once in the first half and once in the second half that I noticed, John Stones and um, Kyle Walker switched places in the back three and I wondered what, what that was about. Yeah, I I spotted that as well. I I don't know whether that's because at that point in time the Tunisians had shifted their position across slightly mm. and it, it seemed like there was a gap. It may have been simply that uh, it was reactive rather they than were dragged over because they were picking up a player and, mm. and they were just kind of seamlessly swapping. Mm. I'm not sure what the reason was, but what it is indicative of is that this is not a backline that's absolutely wedded to a, a straightforward set of positions mm. and aren't flexible enough to react to the circumstances around them. So the fact that they were able to do that and not get confused by it mm. uh, is quite encouraging. And on a more straightforward note, uh, Harry Kane scored both of England's goals. He didn't have um, a brilliant game just in terms of the fact that we didn't see him with the ball at his feet very often. The Tunisian defence were marking him very closely and there were a couple of moments I think everyone will have seen where he was uh, grappling and being brought down in the box and you know didn't have the opportunity to have the ball at his feet very often. But he had two opportunities and he scored two goals. I mean, that's what you want from your striker, isn't it? That almost seems like a, a hark back to olden times. Yeah, and I think also he, he sounded very uh, positive and... Uh, not coherent, the wrong way. He, Harry Kane sometimes comes across as a little bit monotonal when he's interviewed. Right. Yeah. But in the post-match, he sounded really upbeat. He sounded like he's growing into uh, the position of captain. And you can't ask for more from a captain than to do what their job on the pitch is. Yeah. He was given, like you said, two opportunities to score, and yeah. he took both of them. In and the right place, right time. Both, arguably, both should have had at least one penalty yeah. given uh, for him. So. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's. I, I mean, it's very difficult that the, the commentary team was mordantly negative throughout that game, mm-hmm. and it was incredibly frustrating and mm. disappointing to listen to that because it was not a reflection of what we were seeing on the pitch. There was a, there was times in the second half where they were trying to promote their um, pointless player ratings mm. thing, their app, 
and they were saying they were imagining that there'd be some pretty bad ratings and wouldn't wouldn't make for good reading, which we in here couldn't understand at all. We thought that yeah, sure, there were moments in the second half where the you know the emphasis and the emphasis wasn't as as it had been in the first half, but that's presumably because the players were a little tired and because you have to you know build momentum back up again. I thought throughout the game, pretty much everyone was having a good game. I couldn't mm. pick one England player that uh, underperformed, so I don't really know what they were talking about. It's just no, reinforcing quite a it's, negative it's, narrative. It's a, it's the stupid, you know, for the first five minutes of that game, England yeah. were going to win the World Cup. Yeah. And I think for, I was saying that as well. For the next, <laughs> sure. Uh, for the next 80 minutes, uh, they weren't just going to not win the World Cup, they yeah. were a national disgrace, yeah. and we should all be mocking them. And yeah. that's, sadly, that is the standard of punditry that we've seen. Mm. It, I think it's more polarising when it refers to England, because obviously we have a kind of a vested interest in, in being positive about them and seeing them do well. But yeah. The punditry throughout this tournament has been almost universally appalling. Yeah. So it's no great shock to see that uh, evidenced in this, the commentary for this game. What's interesting now is we watched uh, the the Belgium Panama game earlier. Two teams who play in two quite different ways to Tunisia. We imagine if uh, we can take from what Panama did against Belgium that Panama will sit a little bit deeper, <coughs> perhaps not offer the same kind of threat that Tunisia did at times. Also. Having seen England's performance there, if they can keep that momentum going, and having seen Belgium's performance in the second half of their game, that third game's going to be a cracker, right? It's going to be really good. Yeah, I mean, yeah. at the moment, those two teams, in terms of performances and results, the whole package has been maybe they, the most disciplined, the most exciting to watch. Oh, the, I don't think there's any question that so far of all the, the teams that we've watched, and we mm. have watched every minute of every, or I've watched every minute of every game. Um, Belgium have by and large looked the best mm. England probably a very very close second mm-hmm. um, and yes it's it's really interesting to, to see those two teams with pretty similar systems mm. um, you know England don't have a deep playmaker in the same way that, that Belgium used Kevin De Bruyne but perhaps we'll be seeing Ruben Loftus-Cheek brought in for one of those two advanced midfielders for that mm. game and if that were to happen what, who would your choice be? To, to, to drop to the bench Jesse Lingard or Deli Alli oh, Forget, really forgetting hard. about the potential injury I mean Deli Alli looked a little bit stiff in the second half he picked up a, a, an injury to his thigh it looked like in the first half so forgetting about that I'd, I would probably oh, I'd probably drop Deli Alli mm. of the two mm. I, I just think Lingard is he's such a tactically intelligent player he popped up early on in the first half with yeah. two opportunities in a way that Deli Ali didn't really. But actually, what you'd probably do is you'd probably play both of them off Kane and 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 stick Sterling on the bench right. to to use Sterling as an impact player. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's that will be a really interesting conundrum for Southgate. And you know, does he keep a settled side the whole way through the group? Try and use the same starting eleven each side each time, and and he probably will pick a very similar starting eleven when it comes to facing Panama, unless mm. Deli Ali does have a thigh strain, which seems to be intimated from from the coverage. Uh, does he then change it up against Belgium or not? Uh, I, I think there probably will be a temptation to keep it the same mm. because what we saw there was he made changes, and those changes did have a positive impact. Now, as a coach, you're probably going to look at that and think, mm, actually, you know, I. I I got my selection right in the first instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, <coughs> slightly questionable penalty decision yeah. and not getting a couple of fairly obvious penalties aside, yeah. that would have been a lot less nervy for the last sort of 15, 20 minutes yeah. if, if those had, had gone England's way. So 
he's going to be thinking, I got it right in the first instance. I then made the right changes to, to kind of push the game more in England's direction. So he'll feel confident that what he decides is the right call. Yeah. And, and I think he can, can feel that with some uh, certainty. Well, it was very exciting. I enjoyed that. That's my favourite moment of the World Cup so far. <laughs> A lovely last-minute goal. You, you guys were cheering manically. I was sort of sat there quite... Which I found Tell the world. Things. <laughs> Tell the world. Working with a sociopath. Right. Okay. Uh, that'll do for now. Gareth Southgate's being interviewed on the TV, and I want to watch. Uh, but uh, thanks for listening. And uh, oh, we're at the Old Red Lion, by the way. Come on down. We heard them all singing "Football's Coming Home" as we popped outside for a cigarette. And by gosh, it is. Yeah. By golly. By gosh. England football is coming home. Is it coming home? Not it's coming co- home. Not okay, it's coming home. No, no, it's coming home. Well, I think we could talk about where the home of football actually is because there's, there's England. <laughs> there are examples of games like football being played in Mesoamerica in the sort of four thousand. Oh, <coughs> right. Okay. Well, uh, we'll chat to you tomorrow with more dry acerbic football podcasting. Mm. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Thanks to the Old Red Lion, and uh, see you later, Neil. Bye. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com.